What's going on, everybody? Thank you so much for kicking off your week with us. This is your Monday edition of Fantasy MLB Today. We are a Sports Ethos presentation, and I'm your host, Joe Orico. You can hit me up over on Twitter, at JoeOrico99. You can find all of our other baseball and fantasy baseball content at EthosFantasyBB. And, of course, at SportsEthos.com as well. That's where all of our content is posted out online. We are here with another team preview today. This is our third one. We had Mike Carter join us for the White Sox. We had our friend Chris Welsh join us last week as well for the Diamondbacks. And we have another Chris here joining us for the first time on the pod. You know him from Pitcher List, from the Fantrax Toolshed, and he's also got a new project here that he is going to be telling us about in just a second. Chris Clegg, how you doing, my friend? Joe Rico, it's so good to be back and chat with you. Actually, I say back. I haven't been on the pod before, but yeah. we did meet in Arizona. <laughs> we played golf. We hung out. And it was a blast. I'm so glad that you got to make it down and uh, hang out this year with everybody, get to meet a lot of people. It's an awesome experience. And it was only my second year. So I act like that. Yeah, you know, I'm some advanced guy at first pitch Arizona. But uh, yeah, it's always good to see you know this first timers there. And I was that you know, not long ago. And man, I had a blast. I know you did, too. So uh, it was good to meet you. Good to play golf. And now it's good to be on the pod. It was it was fantastic. You know, I talked with Welsh last week about how the environment there is just like you're you're there for the baseball. You're there to watch, you know, the minor league games, and of course, you guys, you know, Welsh, Eric Cross, your your co-host. You guys are there to watch these prospects. You, you can you know help your content. For me, I'm not such a big prospect guy. <clears throat> I still went to the All Star game and I still enjoyed watching it. But the social aspect, meeting all these cool people, picking the brains of some of the best minds in the industry. That's what I go there for. That's what I'm going to go there for again next year. Uh, it was it was just fantastic time. Was there something in particular like that was your your favorite part of Arizona? I was thinking, I was just thinking about that. And, you know, the home run derby was an absolute blast. Like, you know, we were just out there like little kids out there in the, you know, out, we were originally behind the plate and then we moved out to the outfield and there was a few of us out there and it's like watching everybody go after the home runs and like uh, even some of our crew, like almost catching home run balls. So that was a, that was really fun. Honestly, like, you know, like you said, I go for, most and I won't say mostly the AFL, but I go to watch these prospects. I go to hang out with people. So the home run derby just kind of sticks out this year because I've never been to a home run derby before. So that was like a new experience. And then it was especially a different experience when we went out there in the outfield, like berm area, and just like had a blast watching everybody dive after baseballs. See, I was about to head over to the home run derby, you know, sitting beside Nick Pollock at the bar. And for the first pitch of the world, it was game six of the World Series that night. Yeah. The first pitch that Valdez threw, Nick like lost his mind because he didn't get a call. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm just going to stick with Nick <laughs> here and I'm going to watch this. I I wanted to do both, but at the end of the day, uh, it was a hell of a lot of fun sitting there with Nick, who you are now partnered up with over at Pitcher List. Congratulations on that. Yeah, uh, that's awesome group to be a part of. And you've also got something else uh, that you've just started up at uh, Substack. You want to just tell us about that real quick? Sure. Yeah. So I uh, launched a Substack. It's called the Dynasty Dugout, where it's just pretty much all dynasty and prospect content. It it houses my rankings, so dynasty prospects, first-year player draft. Basically, I'm trying to just create a community of people that love dynasty prospects, etc. We've got Discord. We've got, you know, all the ranks there. I do, you know, write-ups on players, all kind of good stuff there. And it's it's really been cool to see kind of everybody come around that. Still, you know, only two, two weeks old. So it is a... Uh, a new project, but one that I'm excited to see kind of where it goes and everything. And the support's been kind of overwhelming as you you might expect in this industry, but yeah, some new projects this year, obviously with, with pitcher list as well. I went on there, 
uh, around the beginning of December. And then I'm kind of the dynasty lead over there and then doing my own thing as well. So it's uh, a good mix and it's been a lot of fun. So I, I decided this year that all my content would be strictly limited to dynasty and prospects because I always try to do too much. That's kind of my personality is to go overboard and do just a ton. And I'm like, my passion is dynasty. My passion is prospects. So let's focus all my attention there and provide content exclusively there. So that's kind of what I'm doing. And it's been really fun. You're doing a fantastic job. We actually, you know, you did those, uh, those mock drafts that you've scheduled. They're actually, mm -hmm. I'm in one of them. They're going to get started. I think right around the time we're recording here, I got to make sure I don't get auto picked here. <laughs> um, you guys should really check out everything that Chris does. He's on Twitter at Roto Clegg. He's of course that pitcher list and check out the tool shed pod because it is probably your, your preeminent pod out there in terms of prospect and dynasty analysis. But today we're going to pick your brain on 2023 matters. Not so much looking forward beyond this year, really talking about the Atlanta Braves and their viability for fantasy for this season. We're going to start right at the top. I think it's the best place to start with this team. Ronald Acuna Jr. Bit of a down year for him last season, of course, coming off of the ACL. The power wasn't quite what we would have hoped. He stole more bases to make up for that. What are your thoughts on Acuna this year? Is he a uh, top of the first round pick or should he be a top of the first round pick like he is going in these early drafts? I think so. I think it really is a fair spot for him and I can make an argument at the one-to-one -one spot at this point because we're now a full, you know, he's had a full offseason to really be healthy and have a normal offseason at that to truly get back to himself. And there's just a couple things to note with Acuna last year where I don't think he was fully healthy. There was a lot of timidness in his game. Like you see him in, in right field and he just didn't have the aggressiveness that he had in the past. He still managed still 29 bases, which you mentioned is pretty incredible considering he just come had come off that ACL surgery. Normally we see guys not run as much, but he still ran. And I think there's no reason to expect that to decline this year. We're talking about somebody who just turned 25 in December. So he'll spend the entire year as a 25-year-old. He's a, a young star. The knee's going to be fully healthy. And I think people kind of maybe question like, well, there were some concerning things in the profile, like his ground ball rate shot up from it was 31% in 2021 to 47.7% last year. But I would attribute a lot of that to the knee. Because when we're thinking about a batter in the box and how they use that leg to push off, you know, it's his back leg to push, and it really affects his ability to lift the ball. Because I think oftentimes we don't think about really the mechanics of baseball, but one little pain, like a small pain, even if he had a little bit of pain in his knee, really affected the way he swung the bat, the way he pushed off, the way everything worked. And so I don't really see that as an issue. Acuna has not had ground ball issues at any point in his career. He's a heavy line drive hitter with plenty of fly balls. The home run to fly ball rate dropped significantly last year. So I think with a healthy season, we can expect him to return to 30 plus home runs. I mean, we've seen him almost go 40, 40 in 2019. He went 41, 37. I think 30, 30 is a reasonable bet. And for me, that places him in that top spot. I can make an argument for three, four players that won overall. And he's one of them. I mean, everything you see, the power, the speed was still there despite coming off the injury, just does so many things well. And I think he's going to be out for revenge this year and really have an elite season. His projections are about as lofty as there are for any player. The bad X has him for 30-30. 
Uh, most projections have him for roughly a 30-30 season, 100 runs scored, uh, 270-ish batting average. You can make a strong case that he is the number one overall player. For me, I think he's the number one outfielder. I know people will, are very bullish on Aaron Judge still, but I think you're getting more five-category certainty with Acuna. I, you know, the steals with Judge were, were one thing, but I, is he going to get 16 again? I don't know. I'd much rather take Acuna early on, especially considering the lineup. Not that the Yankees have a terrible lineup, but my God, this team, it's one through nine. It's really a one through nine. You could you could look at this team and maybe, you know, Rosario and uh, and, and uh, Ozuna aren't going to be the most fantasy viable players, but you can make an argument that all nine guys in their starting lineup are going to be draftable players, even in shallow format. So like the, the depth of this lineup, 100 runs, maybe not 100 RBIs in the leadoff spot, but it's hard not to be massively in on Acuna uh, considering, like you said, 25 years old, it's crazy to think like that. Every everybody on this in this lineup, except for Rosario uh, and Ozuna, the oldest player is Sean Murphy at 28. <laughs> like it is, or Matt Olson also 28. It's it's insane how deep they are. After Acuna, you got Michael Harris in that order. Now his price is 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 pretty steep this year, considering you know the fairly small sample size we got out of him. It was like 120 odd games, but still. Uh, he's going in the second round now. Do you think that that price is reflective of what it should be? Uh, are we are we overvaluing him a little bit, maybe? Yeah, and this is a case where, based on what he did, it's a hundred percent a fair spot. The concern is, will there be regression? And I think likely that will be the case. I'm not going to sit here and tell you I think he's going to be like a huge regression candidate, or have a huge sophomore slump, or anything. But could we really expect him to be a 300? 30-30 hitter, which is what he was pacing for over a full season. I mean, he went 19-20 with home run stolen bases over 114 games with a 297 average. I'm not so sure that that's who he'll be. Now, I will pause and tell you that I think the power is every bit legit. Most people would probably say like that's the area where he would regress, but I'm going to tell you that Michael Harris is a power hitter. It's really nuts when we look at the power that he brings to the table. And we think about like high end exit velocities and looking at Harris when a 90th percentile exit velocity last year was just insane. And it backed up in the minor. So it wasn't only what he did in the majors, but also the numbers previously had backed it up in the minors. So his 90th percentile EV last year, which is a pretty good indication. It's actually the, one of the better indications of power for correlating is he had a, a 108.3 mark for reference, looking at other hitters around that range, literally identical with Ronald Acuna Jr. He was in the range with like Shohei Otani, ahead of Matt Olson, Bryce Harper, like you name it, like he hit the ball harder than those guys when we look at a 90th percentile outcome. In the minors, that number was 109.2. So that's ahead of Austin Riley, Julio Rodriguez, Mike Trout, Pete Alonso. The guy has power for a smaller guy. He swings the bat with authority. He was 21 years old, and he did this. He's excellent on the base pass. He brings excellent speed. So what are the concerns then? I think most people's question when it comes to Michael Harris is, are there platoon risk? We saw him struggle a bit against lefties last year. The other concerns are the chase rate and the ground ball rate. But I'm looking at, the numbers and largely like this isn't who he's been for his career, especially when you look at like minor league splits, like he didn't really struggle with lefties all that much in the minors. So I'm kind of hanging a bit on that and saying like, okay, like maybe he will be okay 
against lefties, serviceable enough to play every day. Not to mention he's a gold glove caliber center fielder. So I don't really see that being an issue either because he's going to be in the field regularly. And I don't think they want his glove out of lineup. Now, he may hit second against righties, and he may bump down against lefties. So that's that's understandable to think about. He may hit second and then bump towards the bottom of the order. But I will say, like, I think that some of the issues are a bit overblown because people are like, oh, he doesn't walk. Well, he walked in the past. Like, he's shown decent walk rates in the past. And so that's not an issue. Yeah, maybe it changes a bit when you go to the majors, but his lowest walk rate in the minors was 8.3% excluding rookie ball in 2019, so a long time ago. The strikeout concerns are not really there, despite the chase rate. And the fact that he did put these numbers up with a 42% chase rate and a 56.2% ground ball rate is just nuts. So thinking about that, if he can lift the ball a little more, like what can he get to? If he chases a little less, like what can we expect? And I think Harris is a star in the making but I'm, which is why I'm so torn on him at the draft price. I really am because I've part of me is like convinced myself that he's worth going there, and part of me is like, eh, there's some better options later. That's what you have to weigh. Is that risk worth a second round draft pick? I love Harris. I think he's going to be a really solid hitter long term. But at the end of the day, I don't know. Like you have to decide that for yourself if you can take on the risk. He's going as a top 10 outfielder. I'm just filtering based uh, from Christmas to now in terms of draft champions. There's been 16 of them. He is the 10th outfielder sandwiched between Mike Trout and Randy Arozarena. The price is pretty steep, but there is reason, like you said, to be optimistic about him. And specifically with the batting order, you know, even if he does bat at the top versus righties, closer to the bottom versus lefties, if you're looking at his last year, like his batting order splits, he let off once. He batted second three times. He was third five times. Most of the time he was batting nine. So even if he's getting half of his at-bats batting second, and, you know, up against righties, you assume it'll be, you know, 60, 70% of his at-bats would be at the top of the order. You have to assume there'll be more counted stats available for him there uh, just based on the batting order thing. Now, with the power, it's also kind of interesting for me too because he didn't have this kind of actual game power in the minor leagues so much. Like he hit 19 homers in 114 games at the major league level. Now, across all minor league levels, he had 14 of them in – you know, close to 200 games, the power really took another step at the big league level, which is something that's, it's not commonplace exactly. You know, when you see uh, an increase in anything from the minor league to the major league level, but the fact that he adjusted so well, uh, really bodes well for him, I think long-term, but that power uh, it's, it's something to behold, man. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I don't think most people projected him to be that kind of power guy, but the numbers certainly back it up. And man, I've seen him, absolutely smoke some line drives over the wall at some games I've been to this year. So it's uh, been really fun. And again, 21 years old, like we got to think about that. The fact that he was so young and just tore it up like he did. He was incredible. This whole team, like I, every single player, you can just spend like 20 minutes just admiring them. The next guy is no different. Austin Riley. I mean, a little bit of a step back in terms of his batting average this year, but everything else was pretty much in line with what we were expecting from him. What are your thoughts on Austin Riley? I mean, I've seen the comparison a lot recently, just as a side note. Uh, should you take Austin Riley or Raphael Devers if you're in that kind of pick range? For me, it's Riley just because the lineup is so good, and I'm really, really bullish on him for this season. What are your thoughts? <clears throat> what are your thoughts on Austin Riley as a second-round pick this year? I think it's a fair spot. I think people, the people that knock it are the ones that are like, he, had, he provides no speed, which is it's true, but very few at third base do provide speed. And what you get out of him is pretty much a lead across the board. You mentioned the average did take a step back. I wouldn't be surprised to see it tick back close to 280. Now, he he hit 
303 in 2021. I don't think anybody thought that was sustainable because he had a, a 368 BABIP that kind of drove that. But I think what people miss oftentimes is they just say, oh, a natural regression from the BABIP. But somebody that hits the ball as hard as he does and with the amount of line drives that he does is someone that can carry a higher BABIP. And that 315 BABIP we saw this year wasn't reflective of that. I know one, he hit 38 home runs, so the BABIP naturally was a bit lower. But I think he's going to hover in this range. I mean, we're talking about 288 combined between the two seasons, averaging over 35 home runs per year. You talk about the elite lineup around him. I do think there's a lot of similarities with him and Devers. But you're right. You have to factor in lineup context because those running RBI numbers count too for fantasy. And Riley's going to have a lot of opportunities for both of them. So 100-100 is a realistic possibility, I think. Probably even more on the RBI side. I know he went 90-93 on those last year, but give me that all day long. At third base, I don't care about the speed because he's an elite third baseman. He hits the ball hard. He's in the middle of his prime. I mean, not even 26 yet. <laughs> it's kind of a common theme, but I think Austin Riley is just a really pure hitter that I don't even want to say he flies under the radar at this point, but I think it kind of goes under the radar like how good he actually is because of the fact that he does hit for average too. He's not just a power hitter. So I'm a big Austin Riley fan. I think he is arguably one of the best hitters in this lineup and just doesn't give value to such for fantasy. As I mentioned, the speed's an aspect, but I'm fine even without it. Yeah, there's nobody really at third that you're getting speed with. If you, you know, spend a first round pick on Ramirez or Witt or Machado, then you're getting some speed, you know, later on down the board. There is a couple options where you can get some steals, but it's really I wouldn't hold it against any third baseman for for not stealing. His projections great across the board. Uh, you know, ATC, which is one I kind of like to look at, the aggregate, 33 homers, mm -hmm. 89 runs, 97 ribbies, 274 average. He's a stud like everybody else in this lineup. It makes me jealous. You know, even as a Blue Jay fan, we got a good lineup here. But this team, man, like I could every player, I could just pause and just go on and on about them. The next guy, Matt Olson, I, I, I don't know how to feel exactly about him. It wasn't the year I think we were expecting from him in Atlanta. He still had a, a hell of a lot of value. 34 homers, 103 RBIs. Batting average took a bit of a step back. You're thinking we're going to see more of the Oakland uh, Matt Olson going forward in terms of his batting average a little bit higher up to 60 to 70 kind of range or what are your thoughts on him in general heading into this year? I guess I'll just post to you. Yeah. I mean, I think that all circumstances considered, I'm pretty happy with all what Austin Riley did played every day, 699 plate appearances. You can't ask for much more than that. What I do think is worth noting outside of just the performance is the fact that he stepped into Freddie Freeman's shoes and that was a, some big shoes to fill for Atlanta fans. And they put a lot of pressure on him early on in the year. And when he didn't perform, fans weren't happy. I mean, Freddie Freeman was a cog of that team. He was with the Oryx since 09. So big shoes to fill. He's also a hometown boy. He's from the Atlanta area. So coming back home, I, I think that a lot of what we saw last year is, is who he is to an extent. And I'm not so sure the average is going to you know fly back up to, to 270. But I do think that 250 to 260 is probably reasonable when you factor in a couple of things, looking at the fact that his own contact was was still pretty solid. I mean, right at 80%, I know that was down a good bit. And his overall contact was down a bit too from the previous year. It was hard to expect him to hit 271 again. That just wasn't going to happen. And Olsen finished the season really strong. I think it took him a while to get comfortable with Atlanta. But again, we're looking at a hitter like Riley who has massive power and 
also the fact that Olsen still has you know plenty of time to put it all together. He's going to be with the Braves for a long time. I think he's going to be more comfortable this year. And I'm willing to draft him knowing that worst case, like I feel like last year was worst case. Like he got 35 or 34 homers with a 240 average. Like there's not much, like that's just kind of who he is and there's upside for more. So it depends on what you're looking for with a first baseman, but knowing that he's a huge power lock and a provide run RBI. And if you can take a little hit in batting average, then he's certainly someone you should target because he's going, you know, a bit after that kind of first tier first baseman. He's in uh, no man's land a little bit by ADP. The first four guys are all going between 12 and 25. Vlad, Freddie Freeman, Pete Alonso, Goldschmidt. You got Matt Olson at 45 by ADP. And then not after him, uh, you got Jose Abreu, Vinny P, Nathaniel Lau, not going until the 90s and post pick 100. So if you don't get one of the big first basemen there, you can get Olson end of the third, beginning of the fourth and be pretty taken care of in this lineup. You know, 100 and 100 is probably on the table for six guys in this lineup. I mean, they're probably not all going to get there but you could realistically look at a number of players in this lineup and it would not shock me to see any of them get to hundred and hundred and, and Olsen is definitely one of them as well. Now, maybe he doesn't get back up to that 270 batting average, like you said, but either way uh, he should still be a very solid draft pick where he's going. Next up is Sean Murphy. And this one kind of annoyed me a little bit because in uh, in the DC we did in Arizona, I took Travis Darnot as my first mm-hmm. catcher. That one kind of hurt a little bit. Do you think that we're going to see some kind of platoon a little bit? Like, do you expect Darno to still play, or will Murphy get the vast majority of the bats? In your opinion, well, I do think that it's kind of being overblown that Murphy's not going to play every day, but I'm not so sure that hurts Darno. Like when we when we think about both players, I think they actually really work well in tandem together in this kind of role. Now, Murphy, you know, accumulated a ton of plate appearances last year. He played 148 games, 612 plate appearances, but he did DH 30 of those games, called 116. There's a reason the Braves brought him in, because he's an elite glove with an elite arm, and the fact that in the new stolen base environment, you need somebody that can throw base runners out with ease. And with Murphy, the Braves didn't throw out any runners last year. I think they had like a 21% caught stealing rate. Murphy had like a 32% caught stealing rate. Yeah, I'm quoting those numbers in my head. They may not be completely accurate. That's what I remember looking at. Anyway, they didn't trade those pieces for Murphy to not catch him majority of days. But I also think this benefits Travis Darno because Darno's had a long history of injuries and the fact that he's a little bit older. Like he he's going to be 34 before the season starts. So at some point, like you just can't be behind the dish as much. Darno's bat's actually going to play really well in the DH role. He'll probably catch two times a week. And that's okay because he still is probably going to get you 400 plate appearances. And that's what he did last year. And if you look, if you're upset with that, with, with Darno, he's only eclipsed 400 plate appearances once in his career since 2014. That was last year. So if I got 400 plate appearances from Darno and he did what he did last year, I'd be thrilled. I think the DH spot helps keep him healthy. And I think they actually coincide well together. I think Sean Murphy's in for a huge year, leaving a, abysmal team in Oakland, an abysmal park to hit in, and he's going to be in an excellent lineup, a good ballpark to hit. Man, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him have a career year, and it already feels like we kind of saw that a bit last year, but I, I think that 22-plus home runs is in the cards, which would be a career high uh, from 18 last year, and he's going to give you a good batting average, good running RBI, and I still think he's going to get 
you know, 550 plate appearances. And you should be really happy with that from a catcher. I think it's been overblown a little bit. You know, he's not going to get any plate appearances. He's going to lose so much playing time. But when you're going from more than 600 plate appearances, you, you can lose 50, 60 of those as a catcher. And it's really not going to hurt you just because, yep. of, you know, in general, catcher is not the strongest position. I know it's been talked about this year, how catcher is deeper than ever. It's still not a deep position. I don't think anybody is going to go out there and say you, you can wait too long on catcher. But, you know, you get Sean Murphy right now is the 10th catcher by ADP off the board. You get those counting stats because he's going to play, you know, even if it's not 600 at bats, 550 or whatever, or plate appearances. I mean, 600, 5, 550, 600 range. It doesn't have to be over 600 again for him to really return solid value. There's some catchers who are going, you know, they're pretty expensive this season catchers. There are certain guys like Dalton Varsho is going to be a second round pick by the time main event season comes along. Guys are getting kind of expensive. You want to wait a little bit. Sean Murphy seems like like a very good option. Even Travis Darno, like you mentioned, the plate appearance thing is a concern, but I think the career high games played is 112. So we're not really expecting the you know crazy numbers. We're not expecting 140 games from him. He's projected for 96. And even that, I mean, my my DC team is probably not going to be totally thrilled with it, but I'll take 96 games. We can give you similar numbers to last year, which was a career high in home runs for Travis Darno. So he's not washed uh, by any means at this point. It's hard to believe, but we haven't got to him yet. He's the projected six hitter mm-hmm. in the lineup. Ozzy Albies. I'm a huge Ozzy Albies fan. He's coming off of a horrendous year just because he was injured and he was hurt and he came back and he got hurt again like the next day or two days later or whatever. But he's coming off of, you know, his most recent season that he gave us was a 30-20 season with 100 and 100. Are you buying back in on Ozzy Albies at the slight discount that he is this year? Yeah, definitely. I actually like that it's to press the value a bit. We're talking about in 2021 coming off a, a 30-20 season, a quiet 30-20 season with 100 plus run RBIs, and we keep saying that the 100 plus, and because it's true, that's how good the lineup is. Yeah. And while Albies doesn't provide much from the batting average standpoint, it's okay because he's a true four category hitter otherwise, and I don't think his batting average will kill you. We've seen it kind of trend the wrong direction, as we've seen his chase rate kind of go up. But interestingly enough, his zone contact last year was his highest since 2019 when he hit 295, and his overall contact was also the highest since 2019. So what caused the issues? Like, why did he get to where he is? I think he was putting pressure on himself early in the year because Acuna wasn't in the lineup. Like, he was looking to be the guy and just put, like, press too much, and it caused him to chase, swing at pitches he normally wouldn't swing at. And I say that lightly because Albies has always kind of been an aggressive free swinger type, but I think we should expect a return. He's had no restrictions this off season. He's back to being fully healthy and I think he's going to bounce back in a strong way and he's got a chip on his shoulder with something to prove. So I'm all in on Albies and I think that the draft spot's actually reasonable considering what you can get with a return on investment. And again, if you're particularly worried about his batting average draining you, that's not really the case because it's like not, I mean, you look at around the league and if he hits 260, like that's not the worst thing in the world. But I also think we could see him hit a little higher. But I do kind of wish he would just stop switch hitting. That's always kind of been an issue. And he's dominant against like smokes left-handed hit pitching as a righty. And I guess the question is, how would he do if he stopped switching and just hit right-handed? I don't know, but he was still serviceable. He's been serviceable against righties in his career from the left side, 250 career, which is is fine. So 
I mean, at the end of the day, I think Albies is a good buy and he should return to form. I didn't really realize the splits until you just pointed out there. 328 career hitter versus left-handed pitching, 250 versus righties. That would be interesting if he did. Do, I mean, regardless, I think he's going to be a great play, but maybe something in the long term where they, you know, just bat from the right side. You don't need to worry about it. Does give you a slight advantage being a switch hitter, but if you're not, mm-hmm. if you're, you know, if you're not doing that well anyway, you might as well just focus on the one side, a la Cedric Mullins. But even the batting average, I mean, the career or not the career, the league batting average in recent years, I forget off the top of my head what it was this year, 230, something like that, 230 something. If he gives you 250, 260, then he's actually a positive in batting average. I'm I'm buying the dip. I think that he should be more expensive than he is considering this lineup. It's crazy that he's batting six, but I think there's a chance that he'll bounce around, probably bat at the top of the order a little bit or in the middle of the lineup, a little bit higher than six anyway. Yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously there's so much talent, so it's hard to peg down for sure, but I don't really see a reason why he wouldn't bump up. I mean, he's got experience at the top of the order. So I think with a strong spring and even a strong start to the season, we could see him bump in the second hole some. And I also think that, especially on days when they're facing left-handed pitching, that uh, Albies will be in the, the two spot with a chance that he could kind of be there permanently. So we'll see. But again, I think you're right. I think you're definitely on the right track to buy in to the dip there. Yeah, he's going in the mid-50s. You know, you don't have to – and in most second basements, there's not really one going in the first or second round this year. But you don't want to take a Semyon or an Altuve or a Shizzle. You wait, you know, another round, you get yourself Ozzy Albies and, you know – if he ends up as the number one second baseman for fantasy, I don't think anybody would be terribly shocked by it. Uh, the couple of guys I want to kind of group together here because I think that they're kind of generally similar fantasy-wise, Eddie Rosario and Marcelo Zuna. Are you interested in either of these guys for 2023? I think only because of the fact that they're going so late in drafts. They're going to play. I mean, the Braves don't really have a left fielder, nor are they going to acquire one at this point. So, I mean, it is what it is. They're going to roll Rosario out there. And they're going to ro- roll Ozuna out there. Ozuna's going to get time at DH. And is, you know, all the problems aside with Ozuna, he still hit for power last year. And it, he's not far removed from that absolutely insane 2020 season where he slashed 338, 431, 636. Again, I know it's a shortened season, but he mashed 18 home runs. So I'm I'm intrigued by the power at least. And he's going so late, both of them. I just grabbed Rosario after 500 in a DC. And at that point, like you just need at bats. So they're ones that are going to provide that. Rosario had the issue last year where he was like completely blind for the first month of the season, had to have eye surgery and miss time. How does he bounce back? We're not certainly sure, but I do think there could be some value just from the fact that he's going to get pretty much regular plate appearances back there. Ozuna's going to pick 335 in these most 16 recent drafts. Rosario, 470 is his ADP. I actually took Ozuna in the mid-400 range of the DC that I'm in right now, and I, I didn't feel great about it. There's always a part of me with with fantasy players where I don't want to draft guys who have real-life kind of problems going on. I don't know. That's just kind of maybe that's just me. I think there's some other people who are like that as well. But at that point in the draft, you need at-bats. You need you need warm bodies, and he's going to be somebody where he could give you 25, 30 home runs potentially. I don't expect it, but it's definitely within his range of outcomes. He's going very cheap. Both of these guys are not that I think that either of them are going to be that great, but in a DC, uh, you're getting some you're getting some decent at bats there. Now, if you're talking like a 12 team league, your standard size Yahoo roster or whatever, I don't know that these guys are going to really cut it. They're probably going to be borderline. You know, they might be waiver wire pickups, last pick of the draft area, but. Pretty interesting still, considering they're batting seventh and eighth in the order, where you know a lot of lineups Ozuna would be batting fourth or fifth around around the bigs. 
Your projected nine-hole hitter, Vaughn Grisham. I, I'm pretty big on him. I had him ranked as my number 10 second baseman heading into this season. I'm probably higher than a lot of people are on him just because of the overall potential for five categories. Are you big on Vaughn Grisham, or do you think we're going to see a bit of a step back from what he uh, what he debuted to last year? Well, the interesting thing is that he's another one that's kind of got thrown in the fire like Harris, and he hadn't had much grooming in the minors. I mean, we're talking about less than 100 plate appearances at AA or higher, and he jumped right in and was fine. Now, he did tail off a bit towards the end of the season, but everything carried over well from the minors. He had a near 90% zone contact rate, which is significant. I mean, that's highly, highly impressive, and that's exactly who he was in the minors, high contact doesn't chase he puts plenty of balls in play and he he walked eight percent struck out 12 percent in the minors last year and while those numbers had a little more disparity in the majors again 21 in his first chance i was reminded actually that he had inconsistent playing time towards the end of the year and there was a collision that happened between him and robbie grossman on 9 11 actually and after that he really went downhill and he began to play more inconsistently. They played Orlando Arcia more at second base. And I have to wonder if he was just a little bruised up, and it affected that. But at the end of the day, there's power, there's speed, and the narrative that he can't play shortstops totally overblown. Like, that needs to be put to rest because I've watched him live a ton in the minors, and that's just not the case. Will he be a gold glove shortstop? No. But do they need him to be? No. If the Braves had concerns about him being a shortstop, if Ron Washington, one of the best infield coaches in the game, had concerns about him playing shortstop, they wouldn't vouch for that. They would have gone, they would have re-signed Dansby or gotten somebody else. But they're comfortable with him at short. That narrative's overblown, in my opinion, and the bat's gonna play. So I think comfortably we can project him to provide solid numbers. I think he's gonna play every day. I think 15 home runs, 15 steals would be kind of conservative a bit but i think that's a reasonable expectation with a good average he's got such a high floor to hit because of the contact skills and i'm willing to take a chance on that there and he's going late enough where he's going to have second base and also shortstop eligibility which makes him quite intriguing yeah i put him in as my 10th second base when i did rankings last week maybe i'm a little bit too high on him but the fact that he can give you like he's projected for 14 and 16 with atc and like you said that might be even on the lower end he's gonna be bad at ninth in that order but like we talked about you know it, it turns over to acuna harris and riley so he could potentially score 85 plus runs from the nine hole it wouldn't shock me he's projected for only 55 60 but like we've like i've talked about ad nauseum here that lineup is just ridiculous it wouldn't shock me to see him really blow through these projections and give you five category production not terribly expensive either in these drafts that have taken place so far. He is going at pick 181 on average. Really not that not that expensive considering second base and how and how barren it can be. But yeah, let's no, I, no sorry, Chris. I, I, so yeah, I think that there's plenty of room for profit there. So I'm uh, certainly looking forward to seeing what he can do over a full season. Let's switch gears and talk about the rotation because I don't think there's anybody on the bench that's really worth talking about for fantasy so much. There's so many viable options in the lineup to begin with. Now, looking at roster resource, the first thing that stands out to me with the starting pitching projected order, Spencer Strider slotted in as the number four SP. I was figuring he'd get the ball on opening day. Maybe it's Max Fried who gets the ball opening day, but the, the fourth guy in the rotation, is that does that seem right to you? This is so deep, and who knows how it really all shakes out at the end of the day. I don't know. I mean, I'm curious how they work the innings out. Like, how much, how far can they push Strider? 
he's certainly capable. I mean, like was the best arm last year for the 131 innings he threw. I mean, he's one of two pitchers in history to strike out 200 batters in less than 150 innings. And the other was Chris Sale at 147 innings. So that's a 16 inning difference and that Strider did that. Also one of the, the only pitcher in history to strike out 200 and allow less than 100 hits. Insane stuff that Strider did. So I'm really curious as where he slots in. I'm not sure it ultimately matters too much for his overall innings count because I don't think we're going to see him bump all the way up to you know 180. I think he's going to be like a 160 inning type guy. But even with that, there's a ton of value to be had. I mean, like I think even if we regress Strider a bit and say, okay, let's put him at a 3-3 ERA. Let's put him at a 33% strikeout rate rather than a 38% strikeout rate and keep the other numbers pretty similar. That's still an, like a borderline ace in my opinion, if not an ace over 160 innings. So I think that he is the Braves ace. A, one of the aces maybe because Freed's just a different pitcher, but he's just a workhorse type ace. And at the end of the day, like I think Strider, while the price is high, like, you know, the upside's there for even more. So he's a, a he's definitely an exciting one. And I don't know, he could be the opening day guy for sure. I think they'll go with Freed just because Freed's had the longevity and Freed also has done it, been the opening day guy plenty of times before. So that comfortability may lead them to, make free the opening day guy, but we'll see. I just, I love Strider. I, I really do. But the fact that he's going off the board as the eighth overall pitcher, the sixth starter, it feels a little bit rich to me, especially considering how deep pitching is this season. I don't think I'm going to have any shares as much as I want them. Uh, maybe we'll see when Yahoo and ESPN open up their draft boards. I think ESPN actually opened them up. Maybe he's a little bit cheaper on those platforms, but in NFC drafts, I just can't see myself taking him in the second round as much as I'm expecting you know, the same kind of greatness we saw last year. The projections for him are very good. Uh, he's projected to go 13-7, and 7, 162 innings, uh, 309 ERA, uh, 33% strikeout rate he's projected for. Like, it, it should be great, but I have a hard time buying in at that price for next season. Yeah, I think that's the concern is, like, the price tag is really high. And so you want to ultimately look for, like, the next strider, which is so hard to find, but the price tag on him is just is crazy to me, and it's uh, it makes it tough to really buy in, despite the projections really loving him. That's why we're drafting Brandon Fat this year, right? Because uh, yes, that's the next uh, Spencer Strider, <laughs> from what I remember from your from your panel there in Arizona. Now, you mentioned Max Freed. I, I really like Max Freed. He doesn't give you the same kind of strikeout upside, but, uh, you know, he's a workhorse. He's going to go out there. He's going to throw a lot of innings. Every starting pitcher in this, in this rotation is going to win probably 10 plus games, 12 plus games. Freed is actually reasonably priced. I think at pick 70, he's going in that range of starting pitchers where you don't have to, you know, go for those early studs. You wait till round five or round six, you get yourself a Freed, a Gosman, uh, you know, Luis Castillo. Are you putting him in that same kind of grouping of guys that you'd, you'd be willing to pass up on those SP ones for in order to get free? Like, would you be comfortable with him as your SP one in fantasy this year? Uh, probably not because of the, just the strikeouts. And with an ace, you definitely want the strikeout numbers to be there. So if you can get him as your SP2, then it certainly helps out a ton because you can count on the good ratios. I mean, the last three seasons combined, we're looking at a 268 ERA and over 407 innings, which, I mean, that's extremely valuable, like just the ratios itself. Now, should we expect a sub-3 ERA? Like, I never think that should be the expectation, but the projection systems are surprisingly high on him 
given what he consistently does. I mean, he induces a ton of weak contact. He strikes out enough batters. He doesn't walk guys. I mean, we're talking about a 4.4% walk rate last year with a 12% swinging strike rate. Like those are incredible numbers. So do I think that Freed could see an uptick in strikeouts? I do, but I think he also pitches to his strengths. And because of that, we see him just induce weak contact, strikes out guys when he needs. And otherwise, like he's just going to get outs. So at the end of the day, like I, I really like Freed. I like him more as an SP2 because of the lower strikeout numbers, but there are some, you know, really good value, I think, to be had, depending on where he goes in drafts, because he's kind of bumping all over the board a bit. How similar is he in your mind or his outlook to Kyle Wright's? Which one do you do you, are you higher on? Yeah, you know, that's interesting because there are some similarities there, but I do prefer free just from the fact that we've seen it more consistently with him. They're both durable starters that are going to throw a lot of innings. Similar strikeout numbers, as you mentioned. Wright won 21 games last year, which I know that the win stat's fluky and inconsistent, but yeah. it's still a stat and it matters. But that's just the factor of pitching on a really good team that that happens. But overall, I just trust Freed a bit more. So it, it kind of banks on it for the ADP difference. But I actually like both a bit at their ADPs. Yeah, I think they're both great options. There's really not anybody that we've talked about today where I'm avoiding them for any reason. This lineup is is chock full of fantasy value. Uh, really, maybe not one through five in the rotation, depending on how you want to view. You know, Charlie Morton, Mike Soroka. Are you? You think we got one more year at Charlie Morton having fantasy value here? <laughs> yeah, he's a weird one. I mean, they obviously believe in it. They gave him a 20 mil extension for this year, which is a chunk of money for yeah. someone who pitched like he did last year. So. It's. I do think that part of that was the fact that he's just a mentor to these younger pitchers. And I don't know. I think we see his workload pulled back a bit, and the price is pretty high. In the past, he's been a much lower value, so you've been able to you know, get a huge return on investment. And we've seen the moment. We saw the moments last year where he was really good. We saw some really bad moments, too, out of Morton. I still think that he's got enough in the tank to be serviceable this coming season. But I'm not so sure that you know, I think he's going around pick 160, if I'm not mistaken. And I'm not sure I can really pay up there because I wouldn't be surprised if he's closer to 150 innings, just given the depth that the Braves had. So you're going to have Soroka back. I think Ian Anderson's going to bounce back in a big way, too. So they have enough depth where I think they can probably rely on Morton to just not be an everyday guy, be a good mentor in the clubhouse and eat some innings as they need it. I think the ratios bounce back a bit, but I'm not expecting huge things from Charlie Morton this year. There was a span in June, beginning of June, where he went on a like he was just striking out everybody. He went, it was against Colorado in Colorado. He had eight, and then he had 12 against Pittsburgh, nine against the Cubs, 11 against San Fran. He struck out 10 at Great American Ballpark. And that was all in the span of one month where it looked like, you know, the best version of him that we've ever seen. He ended up, you know, giving you a four, three ERA. But like you said, uh, they have a lot of pitching depth. He's probably going to be more on the mentor side. Do you think it'll be Soroka in that fifth slot, or do you think they're going to give Ian Anderson a shot? Or both well, of I, them? Yeah, no, I think they're both going to get a shot. And it's funny because they're best friends. They're going to be competing against each other. So it should be a fun battle all spring between them. And it, that I think that friendly like battle also probably is going to bring out the best in both of them. Soroka's had his first fully healthy offseason in three years, which is nuts. I mean, he's had fluke things. He had the Achilles. The search didn't go right. He tore it again. He was allergic to the stitches in some way. It's just like, it was a huge mess with Mike Soroka. 
But going back to the fact that he was so good as even going back to 2019, his first full season as a 21 year old where he pitched to 268 ERA. Yeah, he doesn't produce a ton of strikeouts, but he's another one like Freed where he gets a ton of weak contact. He has great command. And, you know, the quotes that he's he's been saying, you know, recently is that it's been he doesn't have to worry about his health. He's saying worry about going out and be a pitcher this offseason, not to worry about being healthy. And so I think that's going to be a big factor for him. Ian Anderson's been working in the Wake Forest pitching lab, which Wake Forest pumps out elite arms. So both of them have strong capabilities to bounce back. And who knows? Like it could create a unique opportunity for Atlanta where they can go six man some weeks because I don't think Strider's, like I said, Strider's not a 180 inning guy. You're going to have Morton, who's not a 180 inning guy. Like Fried and Ryder, the only ones that I would expect can be 180 innings over, you know, 30, 32 starts. So both of them are capable, I think, of bouncing back and are both actually good late round targets. No matter which one, quote, wins the fifth spot, I think both are going to provide value this year. Yeah, Soroka's going to pick 388. Ian Anderson also after pick 500. If you look at ATC, they're both projected for all 15 starts for Anderson, 16 for Soroka. They're also projecting Soroka to make 11 relief appearances this season, which is interesting. I don't think he's appeared in relief in the majors. Has he? I don't think he has, but maybe we'll see. Maybe we'll see them because like like we talked about, they're just so deep with their pitching. The last kind of thing I want to mention is is the bullpen. It looks pretty strong. The projections are very good. Rizal Iglesias, pretty clear-cut closer. Let's just say, hypothetically, he gets hurt. Is it A.J. Minter? Is it Jimenez? Who do you think is going to step into that role, assuming Iglesias doesn't cut it or he gets hurt or whatever? Yeah, I think if Iglesias does go down, you probably mostly see Minter, but it could be a platoon-type thing where if you're facing a lot of lefties, obviously Minter's going to be the guy. If not, I mean, Jimenez could be interesting. Kirby Yates also has a lot of closing experience, and he'll be back fully healthy this year. But I do, ex- I think Mentor is the best pitcher in the pen behind Iglesias. So naturally, he's the fit. And I think that Mentor's pretty underrated just based on the fact that he's not a full-time closer. But what he does is just elite. We know Iglesias is elite. I mean, once he came over to Atlanta after the trade deadline, he had a 0.34 ERA with the team. Mentor himself, I mean, 70 innings, a 206 ERA, sub one whip, 35% K. He had five saves. I think he had 30 plus holds. He, he's also an elite arm. So I think he would likely get the shot if Iglesias did go down. Iglesias is fantastic. I mean, his projections are, are incredible. His price is fairly high, but I think it's fairly reasonable at the same time. 54, uh, minimum pick of 42, maximum of 69. He's going between guys like Jordan Romano and Devin Williams. And then after him, you got Ryan Presley, uh, Felix Batista. I think that's a fairly reasonable range for him. You know, get him in the fourth, fifth round, depending on where he actually ends up. But that's pretty much the Atlanta Braves for you guys. They are every pretty much every player we talked about is worth drafting. I mean, Soroka and Ian Anderson, probably a little bit later, maybe not in your shallower leagues. But this team is very exciting. They could very easily go out there and win another championship this year. And I'm so glad you got to break it down with us, Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, no, I appreciate it, Joe. It's a good time. Always good catching up and chatting with you. We mentioned it off the top, but is there anything else, any other work that you're that you're doing, anything you got in the works that you want to let the people know about? And like I said, everything's kind of posted to Twitter, so you can just find me there, at Roto Clegg, and you can find all the outlets that I'm with. So um, a lot of good stuff, and hope you'll check it out and definitely support Joe and his podcast. He does great work. Appreciate that, man. You guys should definitely check out the tool shed. You should check out all of Chris's work. Like you said, at Roto Clegg, he's now with pitcher list. He's got the new sub stack. He's doing a ton of stuff. He is one of the most prolific people in the industry, fantasy baseball, regardless, whatever you're talking about, 
prospects, any anything. Chris is right up there with the best of them. Really appreciate you hopping on the show today, man. You guys can check this out wherever you get your podcast. Of course, subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, let us know what you think of the show. And make sure you check out tomorrow. We're going to have Jeff Erickson here from Rotowire talking about the Reds. So make sure you guys check that one out. Until then, take care, guys, and have a good night.